Welcome to Scanning Realities with Navis, the podcast that provides a laser-focused insight on the most fascinating topics in the realm of reality capture. My name is Michael, and full disclosure, I work as Navis as one of the team leads. And each episode, I'll be joined by experts involved in the world of reality capture that have hands-on experience, or whether they work in an adjacent field or in the role of academia, shaping the minds of the future generations of surveyors and architects. I'm thrilled to have you guys listening to the very first episode. And today we'll be delving into a broad topic of reality capture and documentation. Technology has been a driving force for change in many industries, and the AEC industry is no different. There's a need to work at pace, reduce costs, remove errors, and increase productivity. And this is prompting a significant change. Ultimately, there's a need to scan more sites and win more projects. The method used for documentation for the built environment needs to be fit for purpose and comprehensible both by the supplier and the receivers of data. When done well, it can elevate a project and enable new ways of working. And today we'll be exploring these topics in greater detail with Lena Anderson, Professor of Architecture at Pratt University in Brooklyn and long-term Navis friend and user, and Phil Bernstein, Associate Dean and Professor at the Yale School of Architecture. Together, we hope to answer some of your burning questions and explore what the future of reality capture might hold for your role in your business, whether you're involved in reality capture itself from the beginning or at the receiving end for reality capture data for your project. Let's jump straight in. So, Lennart, if you were at an event, an exhibition, and someone asked, what do you do? How would you explain your current role and position? To summarize it quickly, I think I wear two hats mainly both the academic hat and then the industry hat. So uh, starting with the academic one, I'm an adjunct professor at Pratt Institute, uh, where I'm involved with really cross-disciplinary work. At Pratt, we're a little unique there. We have both architecture, construction management, and facilities management under one roof. So I'm really interested in using technology to connect people connect the different domains in our industry and really using Pratt as a sort of laboratory where we can test things that you can't do in the production environment, how we can work together better and get better buildings built in the end. That's really the goal. Then in my professional hat, I'm a director for a department for a company called Instoa. Uh, we do international work and consulting in digital transformation, mainly on really kind of similar thing, using technology to bring better product deliverable. And we are really using reality capture as the cornerstone to create spatial data that then feed into BIM and data for end users of operations, design and construction. Thanks, Leonard. And Phil, same question to you. If you met someone at an exhibition, how would you explain your role? Well, these days I'm a full-time academic. My role is really split into two. As an administrator, I'm the Associate Dean of the Architecture School, which really means I'm the sort of chief operating officer of our school here at Yale. My other academic hat is I'm a professor adjunct here at the school where I teach courses and do research in issues of professional practice, what the role of architects in the systems of delivery, project delivery models. This year I've taught courses in artificial intelligence, 
in designing new business models for architectural practice. And I'm also doing some research and teaching a course these days on the implications of modern slavery in the building industry. Prior to this job, I was a vice president at Autodesk, where I led the company's BIM strategy for uh, many years. Wow, great. Okay, thanks, guys. Hopefully our listeners can see we've got some great people on the call with us today. And I, I guess I wanted to more or less start with the beginning. So where we are today, you know, reality capture is almost a given and uh, is often used in the world of surveying and beyond. But what does reality capture actually mean? And how do you guys both define it yourselves? So, Phil, maybe I'd start with you. Well, I think reality capture is part of the larger, what I'd call episodic or heterogeneous digitization of the building industry. For many, many years, I think digitization in our industry meant people using computers to draw stuff. And now we are entering into a realm where much larger swaths of the delivery chain are being digitized. And at the front end of that is making a referenceable high-resolution representation of the physical three-dimensional thing that you're working on. And in the building industry, we create built assets. So trying to document and understand that and creating a digital stream that is at the headwaters of that process, I think is, pre is actually pretty important and, and pretty interesting. And it's part of what I believe is the much larger phenomenon of digitization across the entire delivery chain right now. So I, I guess the kind of episodic approach that you're referencing there, is this the kind of episodic leaps in technology that impacts everybody up and down the delivery chain? Yeah, and I mean, there is no global intergalactic theory of digital coherence in the building industry, right? Everybody's applying digital approaches wherever they think it's useful. And for a long time, that meant interoperability between CAD programs. But now it's become a much more interesting problem because there's digital data you know, on the front end with reality capture, on the back end with building control system data and everything in between. And I'm we're in a period that I called in my last book, the digital interstice, which is where sort of post BIM, there's all this data all over the place looking for a theory of coherence, which we haven't really gotten to yet. But I think the gateway drug actually is uh, reality capture on the front end. Thanks, Phil. Uh, and I guess, Leonard, does that speak to you as well? Or have you got opposing views of at least the definition around reality capture? No, I, I very much agree. One aspect I think where we're finding is the whole thing of surveying, right? Where we are finding reality capture moves beyond what the traditional role of a surveyor and where, you know, it's much more than geometry, Right. It is positioned in space, but there's also that data, the metadata that comes in. And reality capture is really interesting because we're finding, you know, I come from a lot of modeling of models. When we capture things, we realize we don't need to model as much geometrically, but we spatially locate information in a spatial data set. And then the model sort of coexists with that, but it really opens up a lot of possibilities because again, reality capture could be, you know, with your phone or with a microphone or something and be spatially logged at position. So that's something we are working a lot with. But again, we don't really work with any surveyors anymore. We actually distribute the collection of the reality capture. 
So that's, I think, the big shift there. And as Phil said, the data standards, it's sort of Wild West, I think, right now, which is, I think, what makes it so interesting that we are testing a lot of different things. And then where does reality capture end and the, the exact definition of it? I tend to say, you know, that digital twin of spatial data. And, I, you know, I don't think there's much of an argument these days that when you start a project, particularly a renovation project or something that involves existing conditions, then anybody's going to argue with you about whether you do reality capture. What I've noticed here on our campus is it's kind of standard process for a lot of projects, but the issue is the university has a hard time remembering what they've captured and organizing it so it's useful for the second project. So we have certain buildings that have been scanned over and over again, but that's a coherence issue, right? That's not a question of whether or not the technology is useful or legitimate. Yeah. And I think that dimension of time, right? Something traditional surveys locked in time, but that's something we're working on, the the ongoing capture, live data. Yeah, this is totally true. There's so many forms of data capture that can exist both inside and outside of buildings. And I think particularly what you mentioned there, Phil, around the scanning element seems to be rather fundamental. So there's always an element of, you know, are we going to use a microphone like in, in Leonard's example? But there seems to be an underlying necessity in XYZ information, the geospatial element of this type of um, knowledge for the indoor space. Uh, I guess, Leonard, you know, you, you're talking there about different technologies used for mapping indoors. Do you also find that things like XYZ data, laser data are the, the fundamentals? Yeah, I mean, the spatial, I mean, talking built environment. And I think uh, stepping back, like what, what are we trying to do? And often it's answering like, what is it and where is it? And that where is so important. And the traditional way of working doesn't answer that that well, I would say, or not accurate enough. So the geometry is sort of the foundational layer, where is it? And then what is then obviously the next question. It's good that we can all agree that reality capture is definitely a fundamental and the fact that there's geospatial underpinning, uh, even better. But I guess, how did we uh, necessarily reach the spot? I guess both of you have been in and around this industry for a number of years. In terms of the reality capture, you know, what have been the big markers of change and where do you really feel the, the industry is now? Well, the way I got into this, uh, it's obviously came from the need of understanding, you know, a complex project. We work in a new public library, it was 15 years ago, so trying to describe that building and then seeing how this process of capturing works. But the driver now is that the cost that came down because back then it was $100,000 to capture. Now, I would say it's tenfold less, right? And the quality is much, much better. So the driver there, now there's no reason not to scan anything in my view, because the amount of issues you will have if you don't scan, uh, is gonna be you know, paying for that many times over. I've seen that happen many, many times if, if it hasn't been scanned and then you have issues because it's not fitting and so forth. To touch on the hot topic, BIM is the, the hot word that seems to be everywhere. I guess when it comes to documentation and particularly capturing this information for BIM purposes, by using scanning technology, are we? is this essentially the backbone of all information related to BIM? 
metaphor existing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about the word backbone, but I do think that what reality capture does offer is an opportunity to reconcile one of the fundamental challenges of modern construction, which is trying to align the intent of a design team, architects, engineers, and other consultants, with what actually happens out in the field. One of the big sort of existential problems of project delivery is validating that what actually got built conforms with what the intent of the design team was. And when you align a scanning approach as a validation strategy with a building information model, you have an incredibly powerful approach for doing that. And there are, you know, there are a bunch of different companies out there doing various versions of this, but the underlying technology, which is go try to figure out what this thing is in three-dimensional space and see if it conforms with what I wanted it to be as an architect or an engineer is a really, really powerful idea and brings a lot more precision and insight to what is a very big question in how things get designed and built in the world today. We're, we're almost touching on uh, two different topics related to the, the life cycle of a building. So I think, Leonard, you're totally right in identifying the as-built documentation to really understand where a project is potentially starting from or where it ends. And Phil, you're highlighting the power of construction progress monitoring during a project while everything is being built, understanding certain tolerances and making sure everything is built to spec. And I guess both of these things are more widespread and more predominant in the industry because of, Leonard, what you mentioned about the low cost to entry, the ease of being able to capture the information, and the fact that now things can be scanned multiple times without a significant overhead for the project. And also the aspect of sharing that information today, where we work collaborative teams. I mean, we, we work international, people are spread out. You can share this information because of the internet, right? So this other enablers that make it really possible to do this. And another thing is with as-builds. So performance is another thing that, you know, so we think as-builds are just the drawings, right, or models. But to actually evaluate, is it performing per the specification from an environmental point of view, an energy point of view? And that's something we're exploring there. And I think, again, that's, you know, the next level, you know, another dimension, I would say, of the built environment, right? But Leonard, don't you think that this stuff's going to get even cheaper because the next frontier is post-processing the data? Yes. Instead of having to go back and curate it by human intervention, that as we collect more of this stuff, we'll be able to post-process it in a way that's faster and more intelligent and possibly driven by artificial intelligence. So... You won't have to go around and fill in the blanks, or you can even infer from a given scan sort of what's happening, you know, within that construction, within those circumstances. I just think this stuff's going to get a lot smarter over the next five years or so. Yeah, and already collected information can be sort of harvested over and over again. Yes. Like we're using machine learning to extract information from the scan. Some of those scans were done three years ago, right? And as machine learning gets better and better, we can then start to interpret and automate more of the modeling and the interpretation of the collected data. 
Yeah, so I, I think talking on the accessibility of scanning is definitely one thing, but I think here it's more focused on another technology step forward around cloud computing. And now that we have so many more resources available, Leonard, you said the ability to share this information with many, many people, and also the simplicity and the way this data is shared with people. I guess, Phil, do you experience that specifically from an academic perspective? You must be speaking to people with a varied background and understanding of this type of technology. Does the fact that this information is becoming more easily consumed um, help different stakeholders become involved? Well, I think the academic context is actually quite different from the professional context, because in academia, our students are incredibly digitally facile, and they are very comfortable with collecting, curating, moving around, manipulating data. They are, you know, and they, they can do so you know, relatively freely. In a professional context, however, there are a bunch of other considerations, largely having to do with responsibility and scopes of service and risk and reward and things that otherwise constrain the transactional nature of how a project works. So it's one thing to have the data, it's something entirely different to share it. I think upstairs in this building where I'm sitting right now, there's a whole lot of data and people do whatever they want to with it. Down the street at the couple of the architecture firms that are across the street from our building, they're a lot more careful, but not because the data isn't fungible, but because they have to be extremely careful about how they use it. And this has been something that I've been interested in during my academic career, which is not so much what is the technology capable of, but when the technology is used in the context of how projects get organized and delivered and how people get paid and how they exchange risk, that really creates the dynamics. So I may have a spectacularly high resolution laser scan that I've collected of an existing building or a project construction site. Whether or not I'm going to share it with you is a whole different set of questions that are apart, separate from the technology at least in my view, I don't know. Leonard, you live this every day, what do you think? What we notice, I mean, it comes down to the teams, the structure, what's in the contract in the real world, is it included, who's responsible for what? And not, if, you know, it comes down a lot to skill sets as well, right? And we deal with that in academia as well. You know, we have the construction documents class, you have certain professors that are not, didn't grow up with technology and, um, you know, we don't touch this stuff. <laughs> but I think, yeah, definitely on the professional side, there is so much about risk, what's in the contract and so forth. So we're working with owners now, educating them and actually giving them specifications that we recommend to incorporate because this doesn't really get utilized unless everybody's playing in the same ecosystem. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I... I gave a talk to the American Bar Association College of Construction Lawyers, 550 construction lawyers. That was a really terrifying experience as an architect to sit in front of more than 500 lawyers. And a lot of what they were talking about at this meeting was curating digital data so it was available for lawsuits, for claims. And so I think this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You're laser scanning your construction site every single day there's a whole lot of discoverable data there. Are you going to make that available or not? It might be super useful for, you know, managing the construction site. 
Do you want to turn that over to a bunch of lawyers if there's a problem? Not so sure. These are the kinds of process questions that need to get asked about these issues. And it's a situation where, like many things, the digital technology is far ahead of our workflows and our processes to be able to really understand what they mean. Yeah. Another thing there is photography, right? We take these spherical photographs and we work with hospitals a lot. There is so much regulation as far as that. And we use machine learning to blur faces out, but the lawyers get involved. If you miss one face, then there can be a lawsuit. So there is these kind of aspects to bake into your decision making. Other things are where the data is housed from a legal perspective. It's if it gets hacked, what's the comfort level of hosting it on, on the cloud versus locally on a machine? So we we have some clients that are like, it's not leaving our servers, the data, so we have to host it there. So all these things are very understandable, but there can be huge roadblocks for collaboration. There, we, we've touched on another big chunk of technology there around the cloud security topic. So not only is the data all in one place, making sure that we're using the right providers and we're using the right underpinning technology so that the data is secure and it's shared with the appropriate people as according to the BIM execution plan. And uh, maybe just to highlight there the, the topic of the fact we have all this great reality capture data, it's all located uh, up in a single location. And in theory, we could pair the metadata and the semantic data with the reality capture data. Do you guys then start to uh, I guess, Phil, to your point earlier around the digitization process and the manpower required to digitize particularly complex sites. If we have a collection of reality capture data and we also have the meta and semantic data, um, what other information do we need uh, in order to use that as a workable collaboration tool on a project? Well, you kind of skipped over the metadata and the semantic data as if it were easy to collect, curate, and reference all that stuff, which is a little bit, um, shall we say, optimistic? <laughs> naive. You can say naive, Phil. It's fine. No, no. It's uh, it's optimistic. I, You know, in the same way that the CEO of OpenAI just said that his technology was more important than the invention of the wheel, I think a little technological optimism is a good thing. And, you know, at some level... And we've talked about this, the sort of georeferencing of physical objects in three-dimensional space is a unique indexing system. So it's one way of creating a strategy that doesn't take a lot of work to organize all this data and metadata because it's the physical location of a given thing in space is unique, at least in the universe as we understand it. Now, there's a big space between that philosophical statement and working <laughs> technology that people can actually use to design and build stuff. But I do think that if you look at a lot of the work that's happening in a bunch of the technology companies right now, including my former employer, everyone's trying to figure out what the strategy is that brings coherence to all of this data. And it may be that the kind of indexicality of scanned information is one way of bringing some of that coherence. But that is more of a um, manifesto than a technological, implementable technological idea. I don't know how to code that right now. 
Yeah, so if you did, we, we could all take it to the bank, Phil. We could take it to the bank if you did. Right, yeah. Yeah, look at that. We just started a little startup here, right? <laughs> right here on our podcast. Um, and actually, Leonard, you touched on something that's um, particularly interesting as well, you know, talking about your interface into the professional world and how jobs are respect intended uh, around information sharing and strategies, but also the types of information that's shared. And I guess from where you sit, where are these kind of tenders set? Do you feel like the governance and the knowledge of the people that write these tenders is appropriate? Uh, and how involved are you? It's a really good question. I mean, I mentioned owners because we find the beneficiary of all these things are really in the end, the owners, right? But their knowledge base of this is limited typically. But I find, you know, it comes down to specifications, it comes down to the contracts. You know, I'm talking projects here where the rules are set in the beginning and then building the teams based on that. So that's sort of an educational, there are some owners that are really in the forefront there. And I think that's the success stories. Then you have the owners that are less sort of hands off in that. And then you, it's sort of rolling the dice um, there. So I think that that's our strategy. We're trying to really educate the owners to realize you have to be the ones sort of demanding these things and we, we help educate there. I don't know, Phil, what's your take? Well, I think it's a good news, bad news thing, right? The bad news is the global building industry is really lousy at creating standards because there are very few forums in which that can be done. The good news is, is if there's one realm in the building industry where they've done not bad work around this, it's around geospatial. Right, there's been some pretty decent geospatial standards, and maybe those are leverageable to create better standards around some of the reality capture. But in the cold, hard light of day, technology standards in the building industry come from private industry technological victories, right? Whose technology ultimately wins out? And those tend to be the standards and the formats that win the day. So if you're a capitalist, you like that. If you believe that the government has a role in creating those kinds of standards, maybe not so much. I think there's a balance that can be achieved. The UK is a great example of that. When they implemented their level two BIM standard, they did so without declaring a technological winner, uh, but they did establish a standard. But it's going to be hard to keep up because there's so much stuff being digitized right now. I don't know how you create a standard that sticks. Yeah, we, we have a very sort of lean standard we, we try to give to all our clients. And the number one there is positioning, right? Let's agree about a coordinate system for your project. So if you get that, that's a win compared to if you don't have that, you know? So we're trying to find the sort of low-hanging fruit that is like very easy to agree on. But it, the important thing to agree early on before everybody starts working because that's when it's too late to bring together. So, because I think there's two, like standards, great in concepts, but they can also be very limiting if they're not done right. And we're living in a world where things are evolving so quickly where standards can actually become a limitation then that inhibits uh, right. the new stuff, right? So there's a danger with trying to lock things down too much. And maybe that's where AI really comes in 
that the AI is flexible to interpret standards. I don't know. <laughs> well, also, you want to be careful that an a priori standard doesn't stunt innovation, particularly in a place where innovation is necessary. Like, I mean, look, the technology around doing reality capture pretty well understood. Toys might get a little cheaper. The process might get a little faster. But the innovations are going to come in reasoning about that data and post-processing it. You don't want to, you don't want to constrain that. Well, I, I guess on... Uh, you know, potential future technologies and then also around how the data is kind of formatted and standardized, you know, thinking about potentially what's coming next, having this information in a standardized setup would allow something like AI to easily extract key pieces of information. Would you not see standards, whether they come from industry or from government bodies, in a way, be an enabler for that technology to move forward. If you have a really great idea for how that works, sure. But I, <laughs> I don't know how that works. I need to uh, get building smart to pay me. <laughs> well, maybe, but you know, in a way, Michael, you're on to the same argument that's happening in the AI world right now, right? Which is, can you train these AIs to be super smart about with reality capture just by looking at a million models or do you need to be able to reason about them symbolically? I happen to fall in the latter camp because I don't, you know, built assets are so unstandardized that once you get past, hey, that looks like a wall, hey, that looks like a door, it gets very complicated. So I think you're going to need some strategy or some standard that combines, you know, synthetic training sets and actual training sets and deep learning and some symbolic logic. It's got to be some combination of these things because it's just the built world is just too complicated. Yeah, so I don't know if this is the analogy here about supervised versus unsupervised learning. Exactly. That's exactly the analogy. Because that's that what we find on the data sets we're doing. Could you explain a bit more? Yeah, so we tried both unsupervised and supervised, and we always end up with supervised learning because we need to tell it this is this. And, uh, but I, I'm not an AI expert, but... Uh, that seems to be the way forward. And, and again, focusing, what we're doing is focusing on the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that is standardized that appears in every single building, like doors, <laughs> lights, and things like that. But then you have so much uniqueness as well. Yeah, and especially in a, in a global world where doors might look different in one country uh, to another. Well, you know, everybody is like, oh, look, we've got all this data. Let's train these AIs with all this data we've created. But my friend, Mark Graves, who's a computer scientist, who's an AI specialist, you know, he tells me he's done a lot of this work. 50% of the work in training an AI is curating the data so it's clean enough to train the AI. So you can't just pump a bunch of unexpurgated reality capture stuff into an AI and expect it to figure out what's going on, especially because it's not nearly as clean as, say, the several billion sentences that the generative transformers are training on on the internet right now. It's much dirtier, less coherent data. So I, I think what we're talking around here is the ability to maybe classify reality capture data so that it is more representative of the world around it and extractable by potentially another program. Is there any other uses that you guys see as a, a clear win for artificial intelligence at the moment and potentially what's missing for us to unlock that potential? 
there's a lot there. I mean, on, on the, the basic le level is identifying objects in space, right? We do for hospitals now, uh, identify different objects. And uh, the strength there, each hospital systems are fairly standardized. So then we can train for each system, the signage and things like that. And we're looking at wayfinding. We actually have now signage registers we create because there's a lot of legal framework uh, regulations about signage. And again, the lawyers are on our side there because there's risks not knowing what they have. So we help them know what they have and, and things like that. So uh, these kind of things that if you manually have to do it without reality capture, without uh, machine learning, it would be extremely difficult to do some of these things if not impossible, right? Phil, could I propose the same question to you? Where do you see some of the big wins for artificial intelligence? Well, the opportunity is to try to collect enough information about how the three-dimensional build world works that we can use it for all the reasons that we need to manage the built environment, whether it's carbon, you know, everything from fighting fires to planning for pandemics to the public's health and safety to, you know, all that realm of stuff. But the challenge, of course, is there's not very much of this data and it's extremely poorly curated. So if we could figure out ways to rapidly collect this information and reason about it, probably through the strategies that Leonard is describing, which is essentially supervised training, we could gain a huge amount of insight about how the built world works. If we could figure out how to translate what is essentially a highly voxelated three-dimensional scan of a built asset versus translating that thing into how it works. And, you know, I, I run this building, which is a very complex building that has 37 floors and 43 staircases and weird air shafts and electrical conduits all over the place. And for example, last summer, we had to do a bunch of extensive rewiring here. This building is a cast in place, high strength concrete building that has no plenums. So we were literally doing test borings to check to see if we could drill a hole in location X to pull a wire through it. And it, when we did a test boring, when we found a piece of rebar, we had to stop and, re, and rethink it. It was excruciatingly painful. But if we had a scan of this building where we could reason about where all the stuff is, it would have made that project much, much easier. And I mean, just fill in the blank about what problem you need to solve managing a given asset. We need better data. If we could get past just 3D information like this is a plane that looks like a wall that is located in this place to say that's actually an interior partition. It's made up of these components. It likely has a conduit running here. It has these structural characteristics. By the way, there's a dropped concrete beam in that wall that you can't see. A lot of the challenges of the building industry are about precision and prediction and Reality capture is all about improving those two things, making things more precise and predicting what's going to happen. But I'm speculating now about a world where really smart AIs take Leonard's laser scans and generate building information models from them. We're, I assume, Leonard, you're only probably at least weeks away from being able to do that, right? We are. For, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we are... Uh, 
like lights, for example, we can now identify automatically, which is like amazing. Like we have 60,000 spaces now. So it's a 150,000 lights or something that we then not only identify, but also automatically model into the as-built model, right? So I think that's a, the promise I see because we, we, we talk design and construction, right? Where the stuff we build now, we can record, but what's already there, obviously we can't see through walls and, and things like that, but it helps us create these spatial data models of the existing facilities. So we talk hospital systems, you know, 98% is already built, it's there, and it's, it is being renovated and so forth, but you know, the new buildings are a couple of percent of, of the total square footage. So the, the reality capture is really the, the cornerstone, almost like the starting blocks. Then if we're able to do some incredible computing and get some digital representation that's understandable by a computer, we could then maybe even move a step further and start thinking about, or it's, I guess it's past predictive maintenance or more or less a, a building that's then able to maintain itself. Yeah, at least moving from reactive to proactive, because that's that's the thing I, I teach at a graduate class for facilities managers. Uh, last was it thirteen years now, and it's kind of amazing the state of that industry. <laughs> it's you know moving from the guy in the basement, and then they are now supposed to manage these very sophisticated systems, and also obviously we predict. What is the budget for the next five years? What do we need to maintain? What needs to be replaced? What's the best way when, especially now with stricter regulations as far as uh, energy use and so forth. So that's what we are doing at my professional practice. There are, you know, the whole premise is everything should be digitized and then working with owners so the design and construction is not the, the only part that is sort of BIM and, and spatial data, but you have to do all buildings, bring those up to this spatial data system, and then design and construction fits into that. Because that was my frustration, doing design and construction projects, delivering to owners, and then, yeah, it's BIM in a, in a folder somewhere, but it's still sort of paper-based and, and, you know, when it breaks, we try to fix it. I like that everything needs to be digitized, Leonard. I'll definitely take that. So thank you both for catching up with us today. It's been great to hear your thoughts on a good few of the topics that we've touched. Where can our listeners go to find a little bit more information about you? Um, Phil, is it a, a LinkedIn? You referenced your book as well. Uh, my LinkedIn profile has all that stuff on it, or you can take a look at my uh bio page on architecture.el.edu. And over to you, Leonard. Yeah, I guess my LinkedIn page. I don't think at Pratt have anything updated. I haven't looked at that for years, so I don't dare <laughs> to recommend that. Uh, I did write a book five, six years ago, really looking at the implementation and construction when it really hits the ground with BEM. And uh, of course, it's a little outdated now as far as what we're talking about. But uh, also uh, enstoa.com, E-N-S-T-O-A.com is the company I work for. We do a lot of interesting stuff in the built environment, so you can also find more there. 
thank you all for tuning in and listening to us today. We've covered a variety of different topics from reality capture, cloud computing, and artificial intelligence in the future of construction and facilities management. I hope some of the information and tips shared in the podcast today provide you with some food for thought. And we will see you next time where we'll be talking in more detail about construction verification. Don't forget to check out our full resources using the link in our show notes.